Chapter Five of The Lucky Peace: A Tale of the North Woods by Albert Bigelow Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: A Flower on a Mountain Top. Prosperous days came to the lodge. Hospitable John Morrison had found a calling suited to his gifts when he came across the mountain and built the big log tavern at the foot of McIntyre. With July, guests multiplied, and for those whose duty it was to provide entertainment, the problem became definite and practical. Edith Morrison found her duties each day heavier, and Robin Farnham was seldom unemployed. Usually he was away with his party by daybreak, and did not return until after nightfall. Wherever might lie his inclination, there would seem to be little time for love-making in such a season. By the middle of the month, the Deans had taken possession of their camp on the west branch of the Osable, having made it habitable with a consignment of summer furnishings from New York, and through the united efforts of some half-dozen mountain carpenters, urged in their deliberate labors by the owner, Israel Dean, an energetic New Englander who had begun life a penniless orphan and had become chief stockholder in no less than three commercial enterprises on Lower Broadway. With the removal of the Deans, Mr. Weatherby also became less in evidence at the lodge. The walk between the lodge and the camp was to him a way of enchantment. He had always been a poet at heart, and this wonderful forest reawakened old dreams and hopes and fancies which he had put away for the immediate and gayer things of life, hardly more substantial and far less real. To him this was a veritable magic wood, the habitation of necromancy, where robber bands of old might lurk, where knights in silver armor might do battle, where huntsmen in gold and green might ride the vanished court of some forgotten king. And at the end of the way there was always the princess, a princess that lived and moved, and yet, he thought, was not wholly awake, at least not to the reality of his devotion to her, or, being so, did not care, save to test it at unseemly times and in unusual ways. Frank was quite sure that he loved Constance, he was certain that he had never cared so much for anything in the world before, and that if there was a real need, he would make any sacrifice at her command. Only he did not quite comprehend why she was not willing to put by all stress and effort to become simply a part of this luminous summer time, when to him it was so good to rest by the brook and listen to her voice following some old tale or to drift in a boat about the lake shore, finding a quaint interest in odd nooks and romantic corners, or in dreaming idle dreams. Indeed, the lodge saw him little. Most days he did not appear between breakfast and dinner time. Often he did not return even for that function. Yet sometimes it happened that with Constance he brought up there about mail time, and on these occasions they were likely to remain for luncheon. Constance had by no means given up her nature study, and these visits usually resulted from the discovery of some special delicacy of the woods 
which out of consideration for her mother's nervous views on the subject was brought to the lodge for preparation edith morrison generally superintended in person this particular cookery constance often assisting or hindering as she called it and in this way the two had become much better acquainted of late edith had well-nigh banished indeed she had almost forgotten her heart uneasiness of those earlier days she had quite convinced herself that she had been mistaken after all frank and constance were together almost continually while robin during the brief stay between each coming and going had been just as in the old time natural kind and full of plans for the future only once had he referred more than casually to constance dean i wish you two could see more of each other he had said some day we may be in new york you and i and i am sure he would be friendly to us and edith forgetting all her uneasiness had replied i wish we might and added of course i do see her a good deal one way and another she comes quite often with mr weatherby but then i have the household and she has mr weatherby do you think robin she is going to marry him robin paused a little before replying i don't know i think he tries her a good deal he is rich and rather spoiled you know perhaps he has become indifferent to a good many of the things she thinks necessary edith did not reflect at the moment that this knowledge on robin's part implied confidential relations with one of the two principals robin's knowledge was so wide and varied it was never her habit to question its source she would rather have him poor and ambitious i suppose she speculated thoughtfully then her hand crept over into his broad palm and looking up she added do you know robin that for a few days the first few days after she came when you were with her a good deal i almost imagined of course i was very foolish but she is so beautiful and superior like you and somehow you seemed different toward her too i imagined just a little that you might care for her and i don't know perhaps i was just the least bit jealous i never was jealous before maybe i wasn't then but i felt a heavy hopeless feeling coming around my heart is that jealousy his strong arm was about her and her face hidden on his shoulder then she thought that he was laughing she did not quite see why but he held her close she thought it must all be very absurd or he would not laugh presently he said i do care for her a great deal and always have ever since she was a little girl but i shall never care for her any more than i did then some day you will understand just why if this had not been altogether explicit it at least had a genuine ring and had laid to sleep any lingering trace of disquiet as for the lodge it accepted frank and constance as lovers and discussed them accordingly 
all save a certain small woman in black whose mission in life was to differ with her surroundings and who with a sort of rocking-chair circle of industry crocheted at one end of the long veranda where from time to time she gave out vague hints that things in general were not what they seemed thereby fostering a discomfort of the future for the most part however her pessimistic views found little acceptance especially as they concerned the affairs of mr weatherby and miss dean miss carroway who for some reason perhaps because of the nephew whose youthful step she had guided from the cradle to a comfortable berth in the electric works at haverford had appointed herself a sort of guardian of the young man's welfare openly pooh-poohed the small woman in black and announced that she shouldn't wonder if there was going to be a wedding right off it may be added that miss carroway was usually the center of the rocking-chair circle and an open rival of the small woman in black as its directing manager the latter however had the virtue of persistence she habitually elevated her nose and crochet work at miss carroway's opinions avowing that there was many a slip and that appearances were often deceitful for her part she didn't think miss dean acted much like a girl in love unless she lowered her voice so that the others had to lean forward that no syllable might escape unless it was with some other man for her part she thought miss dean had seemed happier the first few days before mr weatherby came going about with robin farnham anyhow she shouldn't be surprised if something strange happened before the summer was over at which prediction miss carroway never failed to sniff indignantly and was likely to drop a stitch in the wristlets she was knitting for charlie's christmas it was about the mail hour at the close of one such discussion that the circle became aware of the objects of their debate approaching from the boat landing they made a handsome picture as they came up the path and even the small woman in black was obliged to confess that they were well suited enough so far as looks were concerned as usual they carried the book and basket and waved them in greeting as they drew near constance lifted the moss and ferns as she passed miss carroway to display as she said the inviting contents which the old lady regarded with evident disapproval though without comment miss dean carried the basket into the lodge and when she returned brought edith morrison with her the girl was rosy with the bustle going on indoors and her bright color with her black hair and her spotless white apron made her a striking figure constance admired her openly i brought her out to show you how pretty she looks she said gaily oh haven't any of you a camera this was unexpected to Edith, who became still rosier and started to retreat. Constance held her fast. "'Miss Morrison and I are going to do the Rushulas. That's what they were, you know, ourselves,' she said. "'Of course, Miss Carroway, you need not feel that you are obliged to have any of them, but you will miss something very nice if you don't.' "'Well, maybe so,' agreed the old lady. 
I suppose I've missed a good deal in my life by not sampling everything that came along, but maybe I've lived just as long by not doing it. Isn't that Robin Farnham yonder? I haven't seen him for days. He had come in the night before, Miss Morrison told them. He had brought a party through Indian Pass and would not go out again until morning. Constance nodded. I know. They got their supper at the fall near our camp. Robin came over to call on us. He often runs over for a little while when he comes our way. She spoke quite unconcernedly, and Robin's name came easily from her lips. The little woman in black shot a triumphant look at Miss Carraway, who did not notice the attention or declined to acknowledge it. Of the others, only Edith Morrison gave any sign. The sudden knowledge that Robin had called at the Dean camp the night before, that it was his habit to do so when he passed that way, a fact which Robin himself had not thought it necessary to mention, and then the familiar use of his name, almost caressing it, it had sounded to her, brought back with a rush that heavy and hopeless feeling about her heart. She wanted to be wise and sensible and generous, but she could not help catching the veranda rail a bit tighter, while the rich color faded from her cheek. Yet no one noticed, and she meant that no one, not even Robin, should know. No doubt she was a fool, unable to understand, but she could not look toward Robin, nor could she move from where she stood, holding fast to the railing trying to be wise and as self-possessed as she felt that other girl would be in her place. Robin, meantime, had bent his steps in their direction. In his genial manner and with his mellow voice, he acknowledged the greetings of this little group of guests. He had just recalled, he said to Constance, having seen something during a recent trip over McIntyre which he had at first taken for a very beautiful and peculiar flower. Later he had decided it might be of special interest to her. It had a flower shape, he said, and was pink in color, but was like wax, resembling somewhat the Indian pipe, but with more open flowers and much more beautiful. He did not recall having seen anything of the sort before, and would have brought home one of the waxen blooms, only that he had been going the other way, and they seemed too tender to carry. He thought it was a fungus growth. Constance was deeply interested in his information, and the description of what seemed to her a possible discovery of importance. She made him repeat the details as nearly as he could recollect, and with the book attempted to classify the species. Her failure to do so only stimulated her enthusiasm. "'I suppose you could find the place again?' she said. "'Easily. It is only a few steps from the tripod at the peak.' And he drew with his pencil a plan of the spot. "'I've heard the McIntyre trail is not difficult to keep,' Constance reflected. "'No.' Provided, of course, one does not get into a fog. It's harder, then. I lost the trail myself up there once, in a thick mist. The girl turned to Frank, 
who was lounging comfortably on the steps, idly smoking. "'Suppose we try it this afternoon,' she said. Mr. Weatherby lifted his eyes to where Algonquin lay, its peaks among the clouds. "'It looks pretty foggy up there. Besides, it will be rather late starting for a climb like that.' Miss Dean seemed a bit annoyed. "'Yes,' she said rather crossly. "'It will always be too foggy, or too late, or too early for you. "'Do you know,' she added to the company at large, "'this young man hasn't offered to climb a mountain or to go trouting once since he's been here. "'I don't believe he means to all summer. "'He said the other day that mountains and streams were made for scenery, not to climb and fish in.' The company discussed this point. Miss Carraway told of a hill near Haverford which she used to climb as a girl. Frank merely smiled good-naturedly. "'I did my climbing and fishing up here when I was a boy,' he said. "'I think the fish are smaller now.' "'And the mountain's taller, poor decrepit old man.' "'Well, I confess the trails do look steeper,' assented Frank, mildly. "'Besides, with the varied bill of fare we have been enjoying these days, I don't like to get too far from Mrs. Dean's medicine chest. I should not like to be seized with the last agonies on top of that high mountain.' Miss Dean assumed a lofty and offended air. "'Never you mind,' she declared. When I want to scale a high mountain, I shall engage Mr. Robin Farnham to accompany me. Can you take me this afternoon?" she added, addressing Robin. The young man started to reply, reddened a little, and hesitated. Edith, still lingering, holding fast to the veranda rail, suddenly spoke. "'He can go quite well,' she said and there was a queer inflection in her voice. There is no reason... But Constance had suddenly arisen and turned to her. Oh, I beg your pardon, she pleaded hastily. He has an engagement with you, of course. I did not think. I can climb McIntyre any time. Besides, Mr. Weatherby is right. It is cloudy up there, and we would be late starting. She went over close to Edith. The latter was pale and constrained, though she made an effort to appear cordial, repeating her assurance that Robin was quite free to go, that she really wished him to do so. Robin himself did not find it easy to speak, and Edith, a moment later, excused herself on the plea that she was needed within. Constance followed her presently, while Frank, lingering on the steps, asked Robin a few questions concerning his trip through the pass. Of the rocking-chair circle, perhaps only the small woman in black found comfort in what had just taken place. A silence had fallen upon the little company, and it was a relief to all when the mail came and there was a reason for a general breaking up. As usual, Frank and Constance had a table to themselves at luncheon, and ate rather quietly, though the Rushulas, by a new recipe, were especially fine. 
when it was over at last they set out to explore the woods back of the lodge end of chapter five